Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, what's up? It's Nolan from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are an automotive history show. This week, we're talking the life story of Gilles Villeneuve, Canada's most important Formula One driver, This guy is a national hero up there and truly one of the greats taken from us too soon. He started out racing snowmobiles when he was a teenager. He invented one of the most important snowmobile innovations ever, which is crazy for a Formula One driver to do, and eventually became just one of the most legendary drivers of the 1970s. This guy raced for such a short time, but had such a large impact, and it was super cool to talk about a Quebecois racing legend. That's Past Gas by Dona Media, available anywhere you get your podcasts. Subscribe today. Number one automotive podcast, Past Gas. Quick, what was the hardest year of your life? A lot can go wrong in a single year. A lot can change, for worse, but also for the better. More often than not, it's the most difficult years that shape us the most. The years that wound us, before healing and turning into scars we can be proud to have survived. For Formula One, that year was 1994. In many ways, 1994 is perhaps the most important year in F1 history. It was a season of endings, including for Alan Prost who declined to return to the league after winning the year before. It was also the season of beginnings. Michael Schumacher had his first year of greatness at Benetton, a run that would set the stage for a decade of dominance. It was also a season of tragic endings and the loss of a legend. So much happened, all amidst an unprecedented atmosphere of political intrigue, paranoia, and drama. Today on Past Gas, Formula One's defining moment, the 1994 season. What makes it the most tumultuous, heart-wrenching, and important year in F1? Who are the heroes and who are the villains? We're giving you the entire wild story, one of chaos and conviction, victory and defeat, life, strife, and even death. Set your past gas time machines to 1994. F1 just banned traction control, so it's gonna be a bumpy ride. Past gas podcast. It's about cars, it's not about forts. You're gonna be a slippery, slippery ride. We're gonna be slipping, sliding all over that trek. We ain't gonna have no assistance from the car at all. Just scoot, scoot, scooting. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Pass Gas, everyone. I'm your host, Nolan Sykes, joined as always by uh, my co hosts, the lovely James Plums Pumphrey. Jamie, Jimmy Plums. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, Chucklin Joe Weber. Uh, keep it juiced. <laughs> <laughs> I love Jimmy Plums, by the way. Jimmy, That's a really good. <laughs> Jimmy Plums, NASCAR and F1 fan. I love <laughs> drop top NASCAR. <laughs> uh, as as we mentioned, uh, yeah, talking about F1 again today. One of my favorite subjects. Uh, if this you get, this is- want uh, an F1 podcast, you want to podcast dedicated 100 to f1 let us know let us know we're crazy enough to do it you know we'll we're crazy man and i like that about us yeah um, you know what i like about us man we're crazy yeah <laughs> we're gonna find out you want us to do an f1 podcast 
Careful what you wish for. <laughs> uh, you know the difference between us and you? We make this look good. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I've uh, got to get me one of these. I'm in a weird mood right now because I found a human femur uh, yesterday <laughs> and I just uh, got confirmation from a detective that it is human. No, what? no, no. So, what? Dude, you may have just cracked a cold case. Are you going to call the cops? I know. So right after taping, I have to call the cops and have them come pick it up. Oh, man, you could have cooked that up. Braised that. I made some, <laughs> some bone some broth. Some crustini. <laughs> oh, God. Well, what a a start to the episode. Uh, we've got a possible crime cold case being solved. Um, yeah, I'm going to try to crack it before I send it off to the detectives. <laughs> yeah. You're going to do your own investigation? Yeah. I was going to make a... a Snitches get stitches joke, but I think it's a I think it's one hundred percent a good idea that you call the police in this instance. <laughs> yeah. I hope I don't get in trouble for like not calling them sooner. Yeah, if you find human remains, we at Pass Gas one hundred percent support yeah. letting the proper authorities know. Yep. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Don't, don't keep human remains a secret because then if someone else finds them, they'll be like, Why are you keeping this a secret? Yeah, and your fingerprints all over them. And all you're left with is clout because you got a lot of <laughs> likes on your Instagram. Yeah. Today we are talking about Formula One, different epi- different kind of episode. I'm very excited because now we're focusing on a singular year, you know, going in depth. Yeah. Zooming on a 365 in, day period. We're looking Usually at a these tree, shows, not the forest. Yeah, we're zooming in right where it hurts. <laughs> I think uh, I think our Ken Carter episode is perhaps maybe the most like. Oh, no. Our Birth of Ben's episode is probably like the shortest amount of time examined in an episode. Yeah, it was like 60 hours or something, right? Or something like, like that. 48 hours. Um, usually we do a very wide scope kind of look at stuff. but Peking to Paris? Short? That took like a... Oh, that was. Was that? Hey, a, oh, it was like six months. One of my fans in the DMs told me that there was a reenactment of Peking to Paris and they filmed it all and he's going to send me the DVD. Oh. <clears throat> huh. Well, thank you for sending Joe the DVD. Uh, without further ado, I think it's time to get into it. Before the 1994 season even started, there was a widespread understanding that it would be a year of great change in the sport. Born out of the pressure to modernize, increase competition from other motorsport events, and the increasing conflict between the F1 teams and the Federation Internationale de l'Automobile, or the FIA, F1's sanctioning body. The 1993 Canadian Grand Prix highlighted the biggest problem brewing for the next season. Dubbed the illicit Grand Prix, it was a moment when the FIA pulled the equivalent of an exasperated teacher sending the entire class to the principal's office. Before the race began, Charlie Whiting, FIA's chief scrutineer, sure he's so fun, (laughs) I scrutinize, (laughs) I'm the head scrutinizer. (laughs) Uh, He announced to the race steward that all electric driver aids, including active suspension and traction control, were now illegal. This meant that 24 out of 26 teams, all the cars except those of Ferrari, were theoretically disqualified from the race. And of course, uh, rest in peace to Charlie Whiting. He passed away last year. Very sad moment for the sport. Uh, Would that be 24 out of 26 cars? 26 teams would mean there's like 40, 52 drivers. Just to, just to clarify for the audience. All of the cars, except the Ferraris, were theoretically disqualified from the race. Oof. The ruling understandably led to massive confusion. Since the beginning of the 1993 season, FIA had lobbied to ban the systems, but such a move would require the approval of the F1 teams, teams that had spent millions and millions of dollars developing said technology and were understandably reluctant to give it up. If this were a chess game between the F1 teams and the FIA, the FIA had just flipped the board and walked away. That's like if the <laughs> that's like if the NBA said you couldn't wear shorts. <laughs> <laughs> you have to wear jeans now. <laughs> um I think this kind of shows how far the FIA has kind of come in the past 30 years. Um, I don't think you'd see this sort of huge rule change in the middle of the season or even near the end of the season nowadays. Um, but understandably, I can see where the, the moniker of the Ferrari Assistance Association comes mm-hmm. from. Uh, I mean, this and definitely you got, adds into you, that. You got to 
question the motivation behind it. Like, why? It's it's almost the end of the season. Just yeah. do it next season. Yeah, very strange. Very strange. In the end, the decision was walked back, and the Canadian Grand Prix was still raced. But it was an early tremor in the earthquake that would be the 1994 season. The FIA was insistent on changes in the sport, mostly due to a growing chorus of grumbling that F1 was becoming too predictable, with the rich teams especially dominating. Hey, that sounds That's very familiar. That's kind of going what's going yeah. on right now. I think this, okay, we, uh, we recorded this the week after the first race of the season. Uh, Red Bull, of course, finished right behind Mercedes. Max finished within a second of Lewis Hamilton. I think this season's going to be good, knock on wood. Um but yeah, this is this is the kind of thing. You see, like, it's a hard thing for the for Formula One to bounce. You know, it's a it's a it's a sport that is the pinnacle of motorsport. So much money goes into engineering, and that's part of why it's cool. But the end result is you got rich teams versus poor teams. The rich teams uh-huh. are going to win. That's just the nature of the sport. That's kind um, of all sports, though. Like, especially baseball and I don't know basketball too well, but I'm assuming it's basketball. Pretty... Well, basketball had the no, basketball, they enacted a budget cap, right? Yeah, Salary well, cap. Yeah, so basketball, however much money they make with in the NBA, fifty percent goes of it goes to like owners and the league, and then fifty percent goes to the players. So the more money that the NBA can make, the more money the players are eligible to make. And none of that goes towards buying basketballs. What? <laughs> no, they have to bring their own balls. Oh my god. Yeah. So well now nowadays like. With F1, they instituted sort of a, a salary cap, if you will, and a cap on engineering fees. Yeah. I think it's like 155 million, and it's going to be going down 10% every year for five years, which will hopefully bring uh, make make it more appealing for smaller teams, so we have a more uh, uh, even competition going forward. What what team would you like to see take over? Is Williams still dropping out, or is there, are they in? They're still in. Um, I would like to see Williams return to form. I think, as we'll see in this episode, Williams was once a very dominant team, very, very competitive dominant team. team. There's a great uh, documentary about uh, Williams. I think it's called Williams. Yeah, so check that out. Um, Made me cry on an airplane. I want all the team. I like. Oh. I really want. I want competition to be super close. Like I want. Yeah. I want to see a different winner every weekend. Kind of like how you see in in IndyCar. Uh, NASCAR, every race this season so far has had a different winner, which is awesome. Uh, I know. I think I just feel like racing is the only sport where even fans of the sport like don't love domination. Yeah. Like it like I feel like if uh like a football team or a basketball team is just destroying everybody, even if you're not a fan of that team, you're kind of like, dude, the Lakers this year? are insane like we still have like these talks about like the best like we want to be there for the best team ever like oh Mm -hmm. i like remember the night like the 96 bulls like the bulls in the Mm -hmm. 90s Mm -hmm. you i was there i saw them play even if you're not a bulls fan or like a fighter you don't want a fighter that loses you want an undefeated fighter so like what is it about racing all racing that like everyone's like well, I just want it to be like fair. I think it is the money. Like it, it money translates into into technology, which translates into speed. And I think when a team is playing really well together, no matter how much money you throw at it, like you can't make people work together well. So it's mm-hmm. like, and then boxing is just one person, and it's like you know that they trained uh, to Hard. get that good. Yeah, And I guess there is like the driver aspect, but I think it is just the money behind them that really makes it kind of unfair. Well, also in, to that res- to that point, Joe, I think like F1 is a team sport, you know, but they have like thousands of people on their team working yeah. like engineers, all you know, all the way down to just like uh, you know, office administrators. You don't see that on the track. You don't see those thousands of people. Yes, like with that's a, true. with a basketball game, you do see you see all the players on the court, like the guys that are sitting on the bench. You see the bench right there. Yeah, um, and you see them switching it out. You know, like but you the can difference see the- with F one is that, like, uh, Toto Wolf said in Drive to Survive, he like they have more people on holiday than Haas has in you know working at one time. Like yeah. mm-hmm. just the amount of human resource that they are able to throw at it whether it's like research and development Mm -hmm. or you know like i think it is just like money at the end of the day for sure and that's why that budget cap is coming in 
And uh, it's not like people are going to get fired because of this budget cap. Like Ferrari is now shifting a lot of their employees to both IndyCar, like IndyCar development. I think Mercedes is shifting, like people are getting transferred to the Formula E division. So it's not like they're going to get fired. They're just getting transferred to other other sports. Um, James, I'm sorry. uh, Continue. This was a big part of the reason why FIA decided to ban active suspension, expensive technology that gave bigger teams an edge. But much like Nolan's forehead, there was an interesting (laughs) wrinkle to that general rule. Ferrari. The one team that didn't get disqualified in Canada was also the team with arguably the greatest amount of influence over the FIA. They had neglected to develop driver aids to the extent of the other teams. So this regulatory change would also be to their benefit. To date, Ferrari is still the oldest and most iconic name in F1, and that comes with clout that was definitely in play around 1994. Follow the money, people. Follow the money. Leading the charge to bring Formula One into a new era was a Brit by the name of Max Mosley. Mosley was a colorful character, to put it lightly. Uh, His father had been Sir Oswald Mosley, the former leader of the British Union of Fascists. That's right. As in supporting Hitler-type fascists. Uh, Mosley, he would eventually distance himself from his father's political affiliations, building a career as a race car driver and reaching the Formula 2 level, where he was known as a, quote, thinking driver, which meant that he wasn't quite that fast, but he didn't crash much either. (laughs) <laughs> Mosley had replaced Jean-Marie Balestre, who had fallen out of favor after a series of controversies where he showed an apparent bias in favor of fellow Frenchman Alain Prost. Uh, listen to our Senna series for more on that. The, that's Find- one of the most infuriating parts about the Senna documentary is watching that dude on screen just like oozing corruption. <laughs> <laughs> By 1994, Mosley felt he had a clear mission. In his own words, quote, Changes had to be made. F1 was in a nosedive of escalating cost and declining spectacle. Mosley was also critical of traction control systems, calling them, quote, Extremely dangerous and unpredictable, just like my toy guy. <laughs> <laughs> so traction, traction control, excuse me, was to be banned for the 1994 season, as well as ABS or anti-lock braking systems, which you know what, I support this decision. I think race cars, open wheel race cars anyway, should ha- you know it should be drivers. You know your feet are your traction controls. You know that's what it is. The ABS your that's are your, your traction control. Your left foot is ABS and your right foot is TC. <laughs> you know that's what it is. That's how it's got to be. You're such a purist, dude. You're such a purist. Dude. You're such a curmudgeon. That's me, man. Now he's a he after uh the other dude passed away he's the lead um what scrutinizer is it? the lead scrutinizer <laughs> Nolan you're such a chief scrutinizer dude <laughs> um hey <laughs> uh aside from regulations it would also be a rebuilding year for F1 as far as driving talent goes Nigel Mansell the 1992 champion had left Formula 1 to race Indy cars As we mentioned in the intro, Alan Prost, the 1993 champion, had chosen to retire outright than to stay on at Williams as as Senna's teammate. Mansell's departure in particular stung. He was joining F1 legends Mario Andretti and Emerson Fittipaldi over at IndyCar, which was having a bit of a moment here in the United States. The departures also meant that Ayrton Senna was the only driver on the F1 roster with a world champion title to his name. For comparison's sake, this year, I think there's... I think there's five drivers on the grid that are world champions. You got Hamilton, uh, 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 Hamilton, Vettel, Raikkonen, uh, Alonso, mm-hmm. and there's one more, I think. Um, Grosjean. <laughs> not Gro- <laughs> Grosjean's not out. It. Uh, maybe it's just four this year. I feel like there's five, though. Well, it's lo- I've, it's lo- it's an escape for me, so. You're just gonna but that's, that's into what you're trying radio. to say is that's a lot of champions yes. compared to this year. A lot year. of talent spread across the, the, the grid as opposed to, this, to 1994. Anyway, for his part, Senna supported the mechanical changes the FIA was pushing for. He preferred to have as much control over his car as possible. 
However, he'd later become critical of the FIA, taking issue not with the elimination of technical aids, but with what he perceived to be the failure of the regulatory body to rein in the speed and power of the cars to compensate for the fact that they were now more difficult to drive. That's a valid concern. Yeah, and as we'll see later, uh, he would prove he'd be proven to be right, I believe. Beyond that, Senna had reason to be frustrated. Many suspected that the intent behind some of the changes was to even the playing field by punishing Senna's Williams team. For example, another decision for 1994 was the ban on the continuously variable transmission, or the CVT. A bit odd, considering no F1 team was yet running such a system. Williams, however, had spent years developing CVT technology in the hopes of one day running it in their car. So it was a preemptive decision that specifically harmed only one team. That would have been really interesting if they were running CVTs in F1. Yeah, I mean, CVTs are actually really cool. Uh, it just kind of sucks that they kind of suck <laughs> at the same yeah. time. Um, if you I, don't, like, a CVT I'm, does not have any gears. Uh, a system of pulleys. A system of clutches and pulleys that uh, it continuously changes the ratio between the drive side and the, the uh, like, I guess, uh, like, the, there's one attached to the engine, one pulley attached to the engine, one attached to, like, the... Drive line? Drive line, I guess you would say. And... It's just constantly finding the optimal, um, quote unquote, gear ratio for the RPM of the engine to optimize acceleration, and then later on, just power. It's a, it's a really so cool. So it would be, it would be like completely within reason to stay within the peak power band. Oh yeah, yeah. Know, they, through I mean, the entire race. Yeah, I mean, Senna wouldn't even have to shift. That's the whole thing. Yeah, it's like he could just focus on hitting the lines and braking, and that's it. Early CVTs in production cars acted as advertised, like they wouldn't shift at all, but people thought they felt really weird. <laughs> yeah. Because you'd just be like, your your engine, like you'd give it a lot of gas and the revs would be going up and it would just stay going up basically. Uh, yeah. And just really weird. So they added like artificial kind of gears into there and shifting just to make people feel like it was traditional and uh, that just kind of sucks. So I, yeah, and the cheaper ones don't really work that well. Like I have one in my Subaru and I can like already feel it slipping a little bit and it's less than three years old. And that's like a common complaint with. Oh, yeah, that's Subaru a big issue CVTs. with those cars. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, yet another change to the rules was the reintroduction of refueling during races, which had been banned a decade earlier. Again, Max Mosley was at the center of this decision. He worried that IndyCar, which was experiencing a boom in the early 90s, was increasingly threatening F1's popularity and decided to copy what was working for IndyCar, a big piece of that being the drama of refueling pit stops. Mosley also opted to add safety cars and stop-go penalties as well, both features of IndyCar racing. If Williams was the biggest loser from the changes, Scuderia Ferrari was by far the biggest winner. In addition to benefiting from driver aid bans, since theirs weren't up to par, a return to mid-race refueling would also benefit the Italian team, since their V12 engines were less fuel efficient than the V10s and V8s of their competitors. If everyone had to refuel, fuel efficiency was less of a factor in their race strategy. Scuderia Ferrari needed all the help they could get. The team was enduring the longest drought in their history of their program, having not recorded a win since the 1990 Spanish Grand Prix. Wow. However, it wasn't Williams or Ferrari that would become the top story in 1994. Instead, it was a Cosworth-powered Benetton and their young German driver, Michael Schumacher, who would make the biggest splash when the season got underway, but not without causing a tidal wave of controversy to go along with their unexpected success. Time to make a splash. <laughs> oh, ho, ho. Max Mosley started the 1994 F1 season with a warning. The consequences for any team or driver found to be cheating will be mind-blowing. <laughs> I can't believe that's an actual quote. <laughs> Despite the dire warning, there still wasn't complete clarity on what the rules were. Teams believed that the new guidelines were basically unenforceable because of how vague they were. For instance, the rules now read, quote, The driver must drive the car alone and unaided. 
But what did that mean? Doesn't a steering wheel aid you in driving the car, for instance? Nobody really knew. Many felt that the FIA kept the guidelines vague on purpose. Vague language allowed their officials greater latitude in determining what aids were against the rules. Adding to the confusion was that F1 cars were now computers on wheels. Gone were the days of a physical inspection yielding clear answers. The cars of modern F1 could find ways to cheat with invisible strings of zeros and ones. Many teams chose to disable parts of their software instead of completely rewriting their code. This increased suspicions over whether teams were really abiding by the ban on driver's aids or employing some sort of trickery to gain an advantage. The gray cloud of paranoia darkened the mood in the F1 paddock, with many of the teams becoming convinced that other teams were cheating, even if they couldn't prove it. <laughs> Dude, all of this is just like, I'm like a Lakers fan or whatever, so like whenever someone plays the Lakers, they can't wear <laughs> shorts. <laughs> they have to wear it's jeans. a perfect analogy yeah they have to wear jeans or khakis or slacks <laughs> and they have to wear they dress have to wear shoes. Cord- corduroy pants that's why all the games sound like <laughs> <laughs> yeah we're gonna take it from squeak 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 to <laughs> <laughs> if a player is like on fire they'd literally be on fire because of all that yeah. friction <laughs> <laughs> chafed oh, yeah. super chafed I would yeah, not want to play a game dude playing a game in like the hot you know, in a in the heat of the summer, <laughs> in jeans, yeah, that's a that, that's just a recipe. I would that's... love, I would love to see a basketball game where <laughs> one of the teams gets to wear regular uh, uniforms and shoes and stuff, and the other team has to wear slacks and loafers <laughs> and like a turtleneck. <laughs> I feel like that's Drake's. Like if Drake was playing yeah. basketball or. Uh, Tyler, the creator, was playing basketball. Loser has to eat one of those hot chips. <laughs> we'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, Whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app. Answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. As the season began, everyone expected Ayrton Senna to dominate. Williams was considered to have the strongest car, at least before the rule changes. Although Senna's famed rival, Alain Prost, had made headlines by flirting with a comeback on a different team, I don't know, maybe I will, oh, no, I don't know, uh, maybe, oui, oui, oh, no, je ne sais pas, je ne sais pas, I don't know if I want to. <laughs> Maybe I stick my foot in it. Maybe I pull it out. That was from an interview. That was audio from an interview that we licensed and paid for. Uh, But ultimately, uh, he decided not to come back. It was unclear who Senna's rival would be at the top or if he would even have one. Enter Benetton, an F1 team that had been founded in 1986 after the existing team had been sold to the Benetton family. Famous and fantastically rich as a result of their famous global chain of clothing stores. It's like that like real blocky, um, different colorful yeah, clothes from the 90s. Um, and they also make steering wheels that look like that too. Whoa. Like a Benetton cool. steering wheel. Like all the all the Harlequin golf guys get a Benetton. I was gonna say the Harlequin wheel. one. Uh, that makes sense. Every Jamie Orr has one. one. Every, sing, every <laughs> single one. 
I mean, it's, I, a, I've been looking up uh, Benetton jackets on Etsy. Yeah, Benetton's cool. Yeah. So far, the team had experienced more rags than riches. <laughs> 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 Although they had signed the promising driver Michael Schumacher in 1991, their B193 was inferior to the top Williams car, and they ended that season as the fourth-ranked team. However, the team's leadership had made a smart strategic gamble, focusing the majority of their efforts during 1993 on readying their 1994 car, the B194. The car's design had anticipated the ban on driver's aids and was optimized to perform without them. As the season began, it quickly became clear that the B194's development was a smart strategic decision that promised to pay off for Benetton. Preseason testing was held at Amola, a track that would play a central role in the drama of 1994. Love Benetton's that Imola. Yeah, there's a bunch of different colors named after Imola. Got Imola red, Imola yellow. <laughs> Any color. <laughs> That's it. A bunch, too. Benetton's car performed well. Very well, in fact. Of course, this wasn't simply accepted by the other F1 teams. Suspicions emerged around Schumacher's performance. There were some clues, however, that pointed towards a conclusion that the other F1 teams would dread making. That Schumacher was simply an amazing driver in a strong car. That's all Chief it takes, of, man. That's all you need, man. Tons of talent and perfect equipment. There's a bunch of different things you need to win. <laughs> Fast driver, good car. <laughs> yep, it's a bunch. <laughs> First among the clues was the struggles of the other Benetton drivers to succeed on the track. Jared Leto's dad, uh, driver J.J. <laughs> Leto, uh, it stands for Jared Jared. Jared Jared Leto actually crashed the B194 in preseason testing at Silverstone. He was then replaced by Josh Verstappen, father of Max Verstappen. At the first race in Brazil. Joss Verstappen was a test driver for Benetton. Brazil would be his debut F1 race. Even before entering the league, he'd only had about half as much racing experience as many other drivers did when they were rookies. Adding to the trying circumstances, 1994's F1 cars stripped of their driver's aids were harder to drive than they had been in years. As Verstappen was trying to pass Jordan driver Eddie Irvine on the left, his car went into the grass causing it to skid wide across the track, somersaulting as it impacted three other drivers. Whoa. It was a spectacular crash that Verstappen was lucky to walk away from. In his own words, the car was specially built to meet Schumacher's specific requirements, and it unfortunately proved difficult to keep the car on the track. <laughs> <laughs> how how strangely. <laughs> it was very difficult to keep it on. <laughs> I mean, how strange it is that the tables turn and all of a sudden Max's son, uh, the Red Bull, is kind of tailoring their car for Max's driving style and turns out hard to drive. Yeah. Not a lot of number two drivers sticking around for long. Hopefully Sergio can keep that seat this year. He did I think pretty he well this in Sergio the did rain. great. Sergio did great this weekend. I'm, I'm super stoked. Despite the crash, a major pileup in the opening race of the season, there was a certain feeling of untouchability floating around F1 in 1994. There hadn't been a fatal on-track accident in an F1 Grand Prix in 12 years. Still, some within F1, including Ayrton Senna, were worried that confidence was curdling into arrogance and then recklessness. Senna and others knew that good luck was a coin's edge away from bad. Whoa. To F1's critics... It was only a matter of time. Back in Brazil, Senna had captured pole position at Interlagos, recalling the memorable stretch from 1988 to 1991 where he'd recorded the fastest qualifying lap every single year. This year, however, it was by a single, beautiful, thick, curly hair on the <laughs> Brazilian's head. He was only three-tenths of a second faster than Schumacher. On Sunday... The race turned into a duel between Schumacher and Senna. 
At lap 21, both drivers refueled, but Benetton had a faster pit, giving Schumacher the lead. Senna slowly closed in on the Benetton car, straining his vehicle's limitations with his signature aggression. In the end, it was too much for the Williams car to handle, and Senna spun out on the 56th lap in front of a disappointed home country crowd. It was an incredible way for Schumacher to establish himself for the season, beating Senna at home in Brazil, while at the same time giving Benetton an upset over the number one seeded team in Williams. That is a huge upset. Dude, no that's one ever like, wants to be humiliated in their home country. Yeah. Yeah, it's like if you go to Cleveland mm-hmm. and you exactly. and you and LeBron are wearing yep. jeans and loafers <laughs> and you just smoke them at basketball. <laughs> Wait, you go with LeBron you both to his hometown? To his hometown. <laughs> but you win? Yeah, you smoke him. Yeah, because Senna was at his hometown, but you win in Cleveland beating LeBron. With, oh, so you're playing against him. Yeah, what, you, you made play, it seem like... One-on-one against LeBron. You're both wearing okay. jeans and loafers. <laughs> yeah, and which is the what we established is the hardest thing to play basketball on. <laughs> the hardest on. thing to possibly play basketball <laughs> <laughs> What's the What's the top, though? What are you wearing on top? Turtleneck. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> the next race was the Pacific Grand Prix, held on the TI circuit in Ida, Japan. As the traveling circus of F1 reached the island nation, suspicion amongst the teams only heightened. Apart from questions about Benetton, many were saying that something was too good about Ferrari's cars. Hmm. In response to complaints, the FIA deployed sound measuring equipment during practice. They noted that Ferrari's car was using some sort of traction aid, but... Before the officials could bring the matter to Ferrari, Ferrari approached the officials and came clean. Other teams were suspicious that someone within the FIA had tipped off Ferrari. Adding to the suspicions, Ferrari driver Nicola Larini accidentally told the Italian press that he had used traction control while practicing. Although Ferrari quickly walked back on the remarks, it wasn't exactly a great look. I used a traction control. I mean a steering wheel. <laughs> <laughs> For the second race in a row, Senna won pole position. The advantage didn't last long, however. On race day, Schumacher bodied past him on the very first corner. Things only got worse for Senna from there, as Mika Hakkinen, driving for McLaren, slammed into the Brazilian from behind, ending the race for both of them. Senna was livid. Instead of returning to the pits, he stood at the track and listened to the cars driving by, listening for sounds that could indicate traction control being used. He was especially focused on Schumacher. He never made his concerns public, but it was clear that he didn't believe Schumacher could beat him on talent alone. Mm-hmm. He privately shared that he had heard suspicious sounds coming from the Benetton car. Turns out he was just listening to Shaggy. Their traction control sounds a lot like <laughs> an American doing a Jamaican accent. Is that Chet Hanks? it's either Chad Hanks or Shaggy I don't know (laughs) Schumacher's defenders argue that Senna could have been hearing Schumacher's semi-automatic gearbox since Schumacher was an early acolyte of left foot braking he would regularly keep about 15% throttle on even while braking minimizing the shift in balance from the throttle fully shutting off he's uh, trail braking somewhat to this day nobody can say for sure Although most 90s F1 fans will have an opinion one way or the other. And as I can guess or can probably tell, they're probably very strongly uh, opinionated on that. What do you and think, Nolan? I don't, I don't know enough about this era. You know? You've got to learn. Nolan was born three years before this. I, I was oh, wait, born no, he... one year before this season. Was, yeah, 93. Wow. wow. That's crazy. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> 93, huh? Uh-huh. Either way, Schumacher cruised to a dominant victory in Japan, leading for all 83 laps of the race. Afterwards, Senna continued to fume, accusing Mika Hakkinen of purposely colliding with him, an allegation that he later apologized for. Always good to kind um, of... Hey, know, man. I'm sorry, yeah. man. I'm sorry. He's <laughs> <laughs> so sorry, me. I got hot-headed back there, man. Hakkinen wasn't the driver Senna had to worry about. It was Schumacher who had the maximum possible amount of points after two races, while Senna had 
a goose egg. A goose egg. A goose egg. Boiled goose. <laughs> <laughs> F1 was clearly experiencing a wave of bad vibes, but things were about to go from bad to much, much worse. Ayrton Senna went into San Marino determined for his team to catch Benetton, both from a technical standpoint, but proving they were cheating and on the track. It was a must-win race for Senna, who had reason to be confident. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> he had won the race three times in the past six years. <laughs> Counseling center entering Imola was none other than his bitter rival for many of those races, Elaine Prost himself. It's like when Creed trained Rocky. I thought you were going to say when Creed trained Nickelback. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> no, they, right. uh, Prost and Senna had a rivalry so bitter that even while they were teammates, they had at times refused to speak to each other, shake hands, or even make eye contact. For years, both drivers, especially Prost, had also tried their best to gain every possible advantage over their rival. Even just one season earlier, Prost had stipulated to Williams in his contract that Senna was not allowed to be his teammate. Wow. It's so funny That's that like the thing that brought these guys together is when Senna was like, I, I think I want to tattle now. Yeah. I, I want to Lane be, is like, welcome to my world. <laughs> yeah, he's like, he's like, I want to become a tattler. Uh, <laughs> I should go get the best one. And then Prost is like, I have, I've been waiting for you. <laughs> Come to the dark side. Embrace your suspicions. Now the rivalry had evolved into a relationship of mutual respect. After all, the two men had much in common. For years, they had been the two most competitive drivers in an already competitive sport. After years in this sport, they also had a shared passion, driver advocacy. On race day in San Marino, Prost recalled, quote, I met Senna on Sunday twice. The main constant was safety, and the fact that he wasn't very happy with the situation thinking that Benetton was not legal. Pressure was mounting on the Brazilian. The press was starting to question whether he'd lost his touch after failing to finish in his first two races. Bookies had Schumacher, not Senna, as a favorite for the first time in the season. For a driver as intuitive as Senna, it couldn't be helping to have questions about whether he'd lost his spark occupying his headspace. Additionally, Benetton's nimble V8 was seen as a superior car for the narrow Imola course. Senna had to put the odds aside, or better yet, use them as motivation. Everybody understood that for the Brazilian driver, this race was a must win. We'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. Sometimes there's a calm before a storm, but other times there's no calm. Just an evil wind that builds into a cyclone of violence and destruction. If you know what happened in San Marino in 1994, you probably have a growing pit in your stomach right about now. But even if you isolated the events of the F1 season in the weeks before the series reached Italy, it's clear that something was fundamentally wrong within the inner workings of the sport. The regulations, the technology, the paranoia wafting through the pits. Everything had drifted subtly out of alignment. A giant machine priming itself for disaster. The storm started on Friday's practice. Rubens Barrichello, a 21-year-old driver in his second-ever F1 season, racing for the Jordan team, lost control, catapulting off a curb and hitting a tire barrier before rolling his car. Rubens was from Brazil, a countryman of Ayrton Senna, and the older driver had acted as his mentor and role model. Barrichello's initial impact was measured at 95 Gs, knocking Damn. him unconscious for a long and frightening period. His tongue lodged in his throat, stopping his breathing and nearly killing him. Oh my God. Luckily, medical aid was quick to arrive and Barrichello, the driver, regained consciousness to none other than Senna crying over his body in the F1 medical bay. Oh my God, it's terrifying. Yeah. On the track, Senna had the fastest time of the day, but it brought him little comfort. He was unhappy with the balance of the FW16, complaining, quote, the car is worse. He wanted the car to be faster, which required lowering it, although it was already bottoming out on the track. The next day, qualifying continued. Rookie driver Roland Ratzenberger was attempting to qualify for his second ever Grand Prix. He was known as a hard-working and friendly driver who had truly worked his way up the ranks to make it to F1. 
Driving a Simtech, Ratzenberger went slightly off track on a fast lap. The Austrian driver wanted only to hit the mental reset button and continue his session. He weaved his car onto the track, testing for any damage the minor incident might have caused. Satisfied with the feel of his car, he neglected to enter the pits and get a full checkup. Ready to give it another go, Ratzenberger geared up for another fast lap. On the fastest section of the track, his front wing failed. His car hit a concrete wall at 195 miles per hour, killing him instantly. This was the first race fatality in 12 years of Formula One. The last had been Riccardo Paletti, who died at the 1982 Canadian Grand Prix, two years before Ayrton Senna had even entered F1. Since then, complacency had set in, despite the warnings of Senna and others. An entire generation of drivers and teams had, at least on a subconscious level, begun to believe that the dangers of the sport had somehow been overcome since the wild and deadly decades of the 60s and 70s. Race day was an understandably subdued affair. That morning, Senna had his conversations with Alan Prost, discussing the possibility of restarting the defunct Grand Prix Drivers Association to advocate for safety changes. This was brought up at the driver's briefing and agreed to by all with Senna, Gerhard Berger, and Michael Schumacher designated to become its initial directors. The camaraderie was set aside for competition. The Formula One show had to go on. On the warm-up lap, Schumacher was driving a slow warm-up pace, leading some to theorize he'd only pit once. Senna's plan, however, was to pit twice. There was chaos at the start, as Benetton driver J.J. Leto stalled and Pedro Lamy for Lotus slammed into him from behind. Eight spectators were injured by flying debris from the Whoa. crash. I did not know that. That's crazy. Instead of the race being paused, however, the safety car was brought out, a concept borrowed from IndyCar. The problem was that the slow pace of the safety car cooled the F1 driver's tires, causing them to lose grip. Senna was furious and approached the safety car, waving for it to go faster, but to no avail. This is kind of a common thing still uh, in, in F1. Uh, there was a few races last year where uh, Hamilton, you'd hear him going on the radio asking them to speed up the safety car. Of course, the safety car is a normal road car, uh, which is hard to, hard to reach F1 speeds around, around corners. Just how it is. They don't want to lose heat in their tires. That's why they do the wiggle, right? Yes. Yes. That's why you'll see them weaving on straights to keep the... You know, just jerking the car from mm -hmm. left to right to keep the temperature in the tires. As the race began once more, Senna tried to put distance between himself and Schumacher, figuring he had to get an early lead if he was going to pit twice. But Schumacher had a trick up his sleeve. He was not planning a one-stop, but three stops, keeping his car extremely light for the start of the race. Like, <laughs> you, don't, you can go faster if you have less fuel. You weigh less. As Schumacher's B194 kept right behind Senna, the Williams driver didn't realize he just had to keep pace, instead believing that he had to push super hard to have a chance. Add to the issues, Senna's car was also dangerously low on the track, bottoming out more than usual. What happened next was one of the greatest tragedies of not just F1 or racing, but of all of sport. On the seventh lap, Senna failed to make the turn around the Tamborello corner of the circuit, hitting a wall at the speed of 131 miles per hour. He was killed instantly. When examining the wreckage of Senna's car, officials found a rolled up Austrian flag. Senna had planned to raise it at the end of the race to honor Roland Ratzenberger. That just hit me hard. Yep. I've heard this story so many times I didn't know about the flag part. Yeah. Senna's death would not be announced until after the race. Schumacher went on to win the event, giving him three victories in as many races, but nobody was celebrating. Instead of the focus being on the emergence of a potential new superstar in the sport, a potential that would be borne out in the next decade as Schumacher surpassed both Senna and his rival Prost in terms of pure racing dominance, all the focus was not on triumph, but tragedy. If there's one positive as a takeaway from San Marino, it's that it did bring out major changes in Formula One. In some sense, it was the awful event that brought the league into a more modern, safety-conscious era. A major investigation was launched into Senna's death that continued for over a decade. Only in 2007 did an Italian court rule that a steering column failure was at the root of the crash, and that Patrick Head, technical director of Williams, was liable. 
although the statute of limitations had passed and Head was never arrested. Ooh, man, can you imagine a judge being like, your fault? Yeah. I don't even have anything to say yeah. on that. That's just like, yeah. it's wild. Because it wasn't neglect. It wasn't like a plan. Like yeah. you fucked right. up and then and like it's legally, like you've agonized over it for, you know, 13 years and then they're like, okay, yeah, it's definitely your fault. Yeah. And it's racing also like, I don't know, this is like, this is a sport where every time you get in the car, even at a super low level, like you are in danger, you know, that's part of it. Um, I don't know, man, that's really rough. Yeah. Oddly, the FIA also launched an unrelated investigation in the aftermath of the race. The regulatory body accused the top three finishing cars driven by Schumacher, Lorini, and Hakkinen of using driving aids and demanded their teams hand over the black boxes containing the car's source code. Ferrari immediately complied. Benetton and McLaren both had external engine suppliers, Ford and Peugeot, and these manufacturers protested, claiming there was source code in the black boxes which amounted to trade secrets. Analysis was inconclusive. There was suspicious code found on Benetton and McLaren's boxes, but both companies denied that the code was actually implemented. The next race was in Monaco, where Senna, to this day, is still the winningest driver in F1 history, a fact that only made his massive absence feel even greater. The media swarmed around the paddock. The incident had transcended the sports page to become headline news internationally. At Monaco, the newly formed Drivers Association was announced, with Nicky Lauda and Christian Fittipaldi named as directors in addition to Berger and Schumacher. With their input, the FAA made changes to the cars that reduced downforce by around 15%. For future races, engineering changes to the cars were also made to better protect the driver. Still, nothing could bring back Senna or Ratzenberger. Positions 1 and 2 were painted with a Brazilian and Austrian flag and left empty to pay tribute to the fallen men. I don't understand why reducing downforce would make the cars safer. The car won't go as fast. Oh. But I it wouldn't handle as well either, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, if you if you reduce downforce, that means you're going around turns slower, which means, you know, if they did have a bunch of downforce but then something let go and they're going around that turn at like 150. Yeah. Oh, that's like, true. Yeah. Michael Schumacher became the driver to beat for the remainder of the 1994 season. His closest competitor was Damon Hill, who battled Schumacher for the title. The year turned into a duel between the drivers, winning all but two of the year's 16 races. Controversy mounted mid-season at the British Grand Prix as Schumacher ignored a black flag penalty for an illegal overtake of Hill, leading the team to be fined half a million dollars and Schumacher to be banned for two races later in the season. These disqualifications made it a close race, with Hill edging out Schumacher in Japan to bring him within one point of the Benetton driver. The season would culminate at the Australian Grand Prix, where whichever driver scored the most points would win the championship. There's one caveat to that, which was that if neither driver scored a point, Schumacher would win for the season. Schumacher got off to an early lead and led into lap 36 when Hill attempted to pass Schumacher on the inside. Schumacher turned in on him, wrecking his car, while Hill managed to drive away from the collision. His suspension was damaged, and he failed to finish the race. The incident made the 25-year-old Schumacher an F1 champion, the first German driver to win the title. It also made him a villain amongst many who believe, not without reason, that Schumacher purposely caused the crash. It was a sorry end to a sad season, especially considering that if Hill would have won for Williams, it might have provided some sense of redemption after his teammate Ayrton Senna's death. Yeah, that's kind of an <laughs> move. I think so. Nobody uh, said Schumacher I was nice, all right? Nobody said that Schumacher <laughs> came here to make friends, okay? Nobody said that. No, you're right. You know who you're especially right. didn't say that? Michael Schumacher, all right? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say Kevin Smith, but uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it is kind of bizarre to think that so many people connected with this story have just met such tragedy. Like John Williams, paralyzed. 
Frank Williams? Yeah, Frank Williams is paralyzed. Yeah. Then is dead. Schumacher is dead? No. Schumacher uh, had an accident skiing about, a, I would say, 10 years ago. He is oh, still in a coma. Yeah. He's been in a coma forever. Yeah. It's crazy, you know? It's like they all went to Egypt together and brought back uh, something they found in a pyramid. You know what I mean? Yeah, a little a little uh, necklace yeah, or something. A mummy tooth. I forgot you had a bone. <laughs> I forgot you had a human oh, bone. Oh, no. <laughs> and I got it from an Egyptian, Egyptian tomb, too. <laughs> we all have a year in our lives that was the hardest. And for many of us, that year shaped who we are more than any other. 1994 was F1's hardest year. And it forced the sport into a reckoning that shaped its modern era for the better. To the Drivers' Association's credit, after Ratzenberger and Senna's death, there has only been a single race day fatality at an F1 Grand Prix event. Uh, Jules Bianchi in 2014, uh, Forza Jules. Uh, yes, F1 is a dangerous sport that could never be called safe. But without the efforts of Senna, Prost, and yes, even Schumacher to pressure the FIA, it wouldn't have ever become at least a safer sport. Hopefully the cost of change will never be as high as it was that fateful year. Little epilogue, uh, Max Mosley, <laughs> son of the fascist leader guy. Uh, this is a headline from The Guardian from uh, Monday, uh, July 7th, 2008. Mosley denies, quote, sick Nazi orgy, but admits secret 45-year history of sadomasochism. This whole controversy kind of uh, led to his departure from the FIA. Um, I like how he gave a specific year too. Like he knows the year that he started getting into BDSM <laughs> and he's like, yeah, I've been keeping track of it. Uh, quote from the article, Mosley, blah, blah, blah. Uh, there was rarely a dull moment in a packed court as a 68 year old began his attempt to sue the newspaper uh, the News of the World newspaper for exemplary damages after it clandestinely filmed him in March yeah. of 2008, enjoying what it described as a sick Nazi orgy. Mosley maintains the gathering was a private party, <laughs> in quotes, for himself and five, quote, from the article, like-minded consenting women, and there was no public interest in reporting it. Uh, let's see here. Uh, James Price, I think his attorney, um, said that there's no evidence that the role plays had any Nazi overtones. <laughs> Quote, if the newspaper, the News of the World, was hoping to get pictures of the claimant doing a Nazi salute or saying Zig Heil or dressing in the uniform of a concentration camp commandant. Oh, my God. This is a whole other story. I don't even think we can. Uh, I'm not going to read this whole article, of course, but. Uh, Guys, how about we cast this? How do we? How let's cast this 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 movie? Let's cast it. Christopher Waltz as Max Mosley. <laughs> every German. He's always going to be nah. the Nazi. We can't. Okay, we already cast. Christoph like, Waltz is already working on the uh, on on another movie that we're producing. Yeah, he's already in the previous. Oh, yeah, sorry, he's double he's in booked. The shell story. Yeah, guys, guys. Okay. Okay, I'm listening. Logan Paul. <laughs> and yes, yes. Logan Paul, and we just make Schumacher sort of like a secondary character, like that we see, like yeah. a, sort of a, a I can't make a, him like a, a no, like a Drago right. kind of character. Like he's in the thing, but he like rarely talks, and he's mysterious. And we really show it from Senna's perspective. He looks like Schumacher yeah. for sure. I could kind of see it. All right. On that <laughs> note. Thank you very much for listening to Passcast this week and every week. Uh, if you haven't yet, tell a friend about the show. I think uh, this is a good episode, I think, as an intro. I'm just going to say it right now. I love this one. This is fun. Yeah, this is a good one. I had a lot of fun. Follow Nolan on Instagram and Twitter at Nolan J. Sykes. Follow Joe at Joe G. Weber. Follow me at James Pumphrey. Follow Donut at Donut Media. Big thanks to Thomas, our writer and producer, and Bridget, our editor producer. Take it easy. You know what? Just like... Why take it hard when you can take it easy? You know, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> so, uh, holla, holla, baby, bye, bye, babies. <laughs> All right, be kind. See you next time. And keep it juiced, wink, wink, army. <laughs> <laughs>
Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.